I'm Ed Randall, and you're listening to Baseball and Barbecue. This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Hi, I'm Jeff Cohen. And Len Aberman is usually with me. However, New York being a stay-at-home order, I am solo today. On behalf of Len and myself, we want to thank you to all our listeners. Obviously, it's a very t- hard time for all of us. And this baseball and BBQ podcast that we do is not very important in the grand scheme of things. However, Len and I had decided to press on because, well, it gives us something to do. And give you something to do to pass the time until we get back to our regularly scheduled lives. We want to continue to bring you new and refreshing content. I am solo because Len and I need to figure out how to best bring you the podcast. We will do that, and if that means conversing over the phone or by Skype, we will make it work. But most important, please practice what our local leaders ask us to do. Keep your distance from each other, wash hands frequently, stay home, clean and disinfect surfaces. Most of all, be smart. For example, I was walking my dog and saw four boys about 200 yards from me on their bike. They stopped and they were very, very close together talking. I mean, how many times have you heard to keep your distance? At least six feet. The new word in our lexicon is social distancing. Come on, people. Practice that, please. Look, we all miss baseball. When it comes back in 2020, no one knows. How many games will be played? I hope for at least half a season. Will we played in empty stadiums or neutral sites? We will find out in a couple of weeks or months. I hope it can start by July 1st. In the meantime, I had the pleasure of speaking with the national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, Jared Diamond, on his new book, Swing Kings. It's highly recommended, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Jared Diamond has been a national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal since 2017. Prior to that, he spent a season as the Journal's Yankee beat reporter and three seasons as the Mets beat reporter. In his current role, he leads newspaper in baseball coverage, in national baseball coverage. His first book is Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Jared Diamond. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So, oh, it's terrific to have you here. So, uh, let me let me start off by saying I really, really enjoyed the book. It Stackcast started about what five, six years ago, and when I first heard the term launch angle and exit velocity, you know, it didn't really mean a lot. The, the batter hit the ball hard and he swung up. But your book really brought these statistical terms into into real context, which I really appreciated. So, what was the? Why did you write write a book to on the home run explosion? Well. This book actually started as an article in the Wall Street Journal in spring training in 2017. I wrote a story for the paper about a group of players who had resurrected their careers by working with outside hitting instructors, hitting instructors who didn't play Major League Baseball, who didn't coach Major League Baseball, were on the total fringes of the industry, 
and yet somehow had the opportunity to work with and dramatically improve major league hitters. And that sort of blew me away. I didn't understand how that was possible. I assumed, as I think many people would, that the best hitting coaches in the world are the hitting coaches that work in Major League Baseball. And if they were better hitting coaches, they would be the ones in Major League Baseball. But that turned out not to be the case. So I wrote the article for the journal, and I think I realized pretty quickly there was a lot more to the story than what that first article talked about. There was a a movement here. It was not just a small group of players. It was a, a whole revolution that was taking place. So as time went on and the home run numbers across baseball started to surge to record proportions, we sort of thought there was more to the story and that was the origins of what became a book. It turned out there was more to the story. And, you know, two, th- now, I guess, three years later, that story has turned into Swing Kings. Yeah, it, it's a, an amazing book. And what at the very beginning of your book, you have two pages that show the family tree of Swing, swing Kings. And I found myself referring back to these pages as I was reading the book. You know, just, it was extremely helpful. That, that was a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, that was, a, that was an idea by my editor, actually. Uh, he thought, we need these this little family tree because it turns out that these coaches they and these players they do sort of stem from each other you know at the top of that tree is in many ways ted williams you know we we talk about a revolution taking place right now in terms of trying to hit the ball in the air swing up all of these things ted williams was talking about all of this 50 years ago ted williams wrote a book in 1970 called the science of hitting where he wrote that you've he wrote, well, you've probably heard that the ideal way to swing is level or down. That's the way I was taught. Up. <laughs> That's the way I was taught, too. But the Ted Williams, who's the best hitter of all time, that was wrong. The way he tried to swing was up uh, with what he described as a roughly 10-degree angle. And his, draw, his goal was to hit the ball in the air to the pull side every single swing he had. But it took a long time for those ideas to like, sort of reach the mainstream again. Now they they have, but that was sort of the origin of the tree was Ted Williams at the top and moving down the line to some of my other characters, some of these names that people may not know that uh, I'm excited to sort of bring into the forefront in the book. Yeah, one of those names was Mike Bryant, and uh, and he was the one who, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, he, he had the book, The Science of Hitting, with him all the time, and he taught his son Chris, superstar with the Chicago Cubs, how to hit using that method. So Mike Bryan was a, a young kid in Massachusetts who loved baseball, as we all do. And he, he, it's interesting. He thought that he could be a better hitter than he was, basically. That he should be better. And what he was doing wasn't, wasn't working. It wasn't working for him. And then one day his mom bought him the Science of Hitting, Ted Williams' book. And it was, it was his whole world opened up. He couldn't believe that there was this, it was like, you know, getting the, the answers to the test in advance. All of a sudden he thinks, oh my goodness, I've been doing everything all wrong. And he ends up having a successful college career, goes to pro ball, does not have a very good pro career, kind of fizzles out in after just like, like two years in minor league baseball. However, he vowed to himself, he ever had a child he would teach that child how to swing 
like Ted Williams. And as you mentioned, that child turned out to be pretty good. Yeah. It's Chris Bryant, <laughs> who's uh, won the MVP of the National League a few years back. Yeah, he's not not too shabby. I uh, wish my Mets had them. <laughs> In the book, the, the Science of Hitting, there was a, a famous diagram that Ted Williams showed how, how to hit the ball, and that really resurrected with, with uh, Mike Bryant. It did. That's sort of the, it's like a famous diagram now. It was very simple. It's basically just a pencil drawing with with uh, hands and a stick and a ball. It's very rudimentary, but what it shows is the upswing, as Ted Williams described it, how the ideal swing was actually up and not down or level, as you and I, as we mentioned, were both taught. And what it showed was how when you swing like this, what's happening is that you're giving yourself more margin for error. You're putting your bat behind the ball earlier. And therefore, even if you make a mistake on timing, you still have the opportunity to get your barrel on the ball. Whereas as you swing down, if you swing in that straight line that we were all taught, uh, if your barrel does not happen to meet the ball perfectly, that's it. You have no other opportunity to make contact with the ball solidly. And it's an amazing diagram. And for Mike Bryant and many others, it kind of became his Bible. I mean, we would look at every time he was struggling, whenever he got to minor league baseball, was having a tough time or college ball, he would pull out that book. And that diagram would just look at it one more time, just as a, a way to remind himself, this is what I should be doing. You know, Mike Bryan had the opportunity to work with Ted Williams directly. Mike Bryan was in the Boston organization. Oh. And he spent uh, a whole spring training working with Ted Williams himself day after day and uh you know he told me the day before he he uh he got to meet ted williams for the first time he read the book twice cover to cover just to make sure he didn't mess anything up and had it all memorized now, ted williams was mike bryant's hero and that was the case for many people sure it turned sure. out sort of secretly so other hitting coaches so who is this craig wallenbrock and why is he called the oracle of santa clara <laughs> Craig Wallenbrock, probably the most fascinating person, at least to me, in the book uh, at all. He's a fascinating individual. He uh, was a young man from Southern California, back born in the 40s, went to college in the 60s, played junior college baseball in Southern California, and ended up getting an opportunity to go play at San Diego State University. He gets there. It's the middle of the Vietnam War in the 1960s. And he ends up quitting the baseball team before the season even started. He became so disillusioned with the world that he just couldn't do it anymore. He had to, he had to find something else to do. So he ends up moving down to the beach and becomes what he described to me as a, as a pot-smoking hippie. Uh-huh. Sort of uh, became just totally disillusioned with the game of baseball and really everything else uh, in life as well. He didn't come back to baseball so much, much later, but it's so fascinating that this is the guy that became sort of the godfather of the modern swing. Craig Wallenbrock became obsessed with trying to understand what made great hitters great. Why was he not a better player himself? He was an early proponent of video study to try to understand the swing, which at the time was radical. No one looked at video back in sort of the 70s and 80s. In fact, you were looked at as weak if you looked at video. You know, they, great hitters said, I don't need video to know what I'm doing. I'm a great hitter. I know what I'm doing. Right. I remember well, Craig Wallenbrock. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. 
<laughs> I think Craig Wallenbrock would look at video and would say, well, you say you're doing this, but I'm looking at the tape, and you're not actually doing the thing that you say you're doing. And that was sort of a light bulb moment for Craig, Craig Wallenbrock, and he sort of became an early adopter of all of this stuff. And he was teaching a more high-level swing for years, and he had the opportunity throughout the 90s and into the 2000s to work with so many great hitters, mostly in secret. He worked with Michael Young and Paul Canerco, Chase Utley, Ryan Braun, all these great names, uh, but did it sort of in the shadows, in the background, which I just find so fascinating. And uh, it took all these years for him to get the, the recognition he deserved. Craig Wallenbrock is now a hitting consultant for the Dodgers. His protege, Robert Van Skoyak, is the hitting coach for the Dodgers. So it took until he was about in his 70s, but Craig Wallenbrock has finally gotten his dip. Yeah, I was going to uh, say to you, uh, Robert Van, I, and I'm glad you pronounced his name because I know I couldn't pronounce it right, <laughs> that he's, uh, yeah, now he's a hitting coach in the Dodgers system in uniform, which is really unheard of before, in, in previous years. Previous yeah, years. completely unheard of. Uh, Robert Van Skoyak played high school ball. He went to junior college, played a couple of years there in California. He was uh, what he described to me as a so-so uh, junior college baseball player, not particularly good. And he ended up meeting Craig Wallenbrock, worked with him, became sort of his mentee, became a mentor-mentee relationship, essentially. And that that kid is now the hitting coach of the Dodgers. Now, not too long ago, that would have been impossible. Right. Someone like Robert Renskog never could have gotten that job. Right. Uh, but times have changed. The Who's qualified to be a major league coach has changed. These teams are now rethinking who they hire, who they believe is qualified. And that, that is sort of part of all of this, that someone like Robert Renskoyak could become a major league hitting coach. We're seeing that more and more, that guys who didn't play the game themselves are uh, now being thought of as qualified to teach it. Exactly. Another one of Craig Wallenbrock's protégés, I guess, would be Doug Latta, who uh, taught or, or or restructured the swings of Marlon Bird, Justin Turner, and Jared Diamond, right? <laughs> All of the above, yes. Plata <laughs> was also a so-so player, played low-level college ball, was not particularly good, but he loved the game, wanted to understand more about it, and he ended up getting connected with Craig Wallenbrock, thought about the swing from Craig, ended up venturing out of his own, opening up his own facility in California, and he is now one of these high-level hitting coaches that we're talking about. He does not work in the pro game. He works independently still. However, he had the chance to work with Justin Turner, all these guys that you mentioned, and myself. Uh, you know, I, as part of this book, as people who read it will see, there's a little bit of a first-person storytelling here. I wanted to see if I could become a better hitter myself. What could I learn from all these coaches. I had access to all of these coaches, and I thought I could probably learn something, and there was reason for that. Every year here in New York, we have a, a New York versus Boston media baseball game. Actually, we have two every year. One of them is at Yankee Stadium, and one of them is at Fenway Park. And I've had the opportunity to play in them. I've never been all that good. And I thought, well, I have all this, these access, these great coaches. Maybe they could teach me to be a better hitter for the game. Now, I can't spoil 
I can't spoil to you what happened, of course. And I won't I spoil it either. I have to get the book. You have to get the book to find out, but the, I can tell you the book does end with me at uh, the media baseball game in Yankee Stadium last year after working with all my coaches for a while. Great. I mean, yeah, it was a fascinating read, and, you know, it, that must have been fascinating to just work with these guys. You, you told about the, the resurrection of Justin Turner, who actually, in, in the book, you describe he learned it from Marlon Bird. And, uh, like I said, I'm a Mets fan, and, it was, of course, the Mets let Justin Turner go. They weren't the first ones. The Reds, the Orioles did it as well. But then Justin Turner found, I guess, with the help of Marlon Bird, found Doug Latta and... And that the rest of what they say is history. He's just now burning it up at age what thirty five now. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Just I've known Justin Turner a long time. I knew him in the minor leagues. I covered the Mets in twenty thirteen. I knew him then, and uh, you know he was uh, he was okay. Yeah, you know he was a decent little utility infielder, but it turned out he could be much better, uh, even if maybe he didn't know it yet. Marlon Bird is where this starts. He was a, a a minor league signing of the Mets in 2013. He ended up being their cleanup hitter about halfway through the year because he he had really was performing. And the way he was doing that, it turned out, was that he had changed his swing. He had worked with, with Doug Latta in secret to change his swing, became a much better hitter than he ever had been before, remarkably. And Justin Turner ends up wondering, how is this happening? How is this guy so good all of a sudden? And one day he learned the lesson that the, he had learned it from Doug Latta. So in the offseason, Justin Turner says, I need to learn that. He goes to meet Doug Latta, spends the whole offseason with him, working day after day after day to remake his swing from scratch. Of course, that's the offseason the Mets cut him. He ends up getting a minor league deal with the Dodgers. And like you said, the rest is history. He comes back, is an absolute superstar uh, right away with this change swing it's it's really incredible it's an incredible story and he's really in many ways Doug Latta's biggest success story that he was able to turn Justin Turner from a utility infielder into one of the best hitters in the National League yeah a superstar an all-star and he happened really late in his career well later in his career I, I should say I mean he's now he's 35 but you know, it didn't happen to him since until he turned 30 which we know now in today's world is is old for baseball I don't know how that happened, but that's a good well, story. Well, it's never too late. That's the that's the moral. That's part of the moral of the book, right? It's never too late. So many of these guys were guys on the fringes of the industry who thought their careers was over. Guys like Justin Turner, like J.D. Martinez, like Marlon Burke. Right. Uh, and it turned out that they had more to offer, even if they didn't know it yet. Right. You also talk about the old hitting school, uh, the Charlie Lau school of, of hitting where you know, obviously George Brett learned learned under him and Wade Boggs learned under Walt Hereniak. Uh, no, Walt Hereniak. Yeah, that, that's not uh, taught anymore, is it? Not as much, but Charlie Lau, any sort of older listener is definitely familiar with Charlie Lau. He was probably the first celebrity hitting coach, right? He was, he was the man back in the 70s and 80s before sort of there was the internet and this idea of like, before the idea of like hitting coaches even a thing, right. there was Charlie Lau. He was the guy. And he taught a very specific style of hitting that was in vogue in the 70s. It's very short swing. It was down, sort of designed for line drives and hard ground balls. And it worked for some guys. I mean, it worked for, uh, like we said, uh, George Brett, who was a Hall of Famer. But it's important to remember that that's, 
the game was a lot different in the 70s. There was a lot of AstroTurf. Stadiums were bigger. Uh, home runs were hard to come by. There was there were hits and extra base hits that we have on the, that we had on the ground that that really aren't there today, which is so interesting. That's true. Yeah. So it worked then, but times have changed. There's defensive shifts have made uh, ground balls harder to sort of lead to good results and the like. And that style's kind of gone out of favor in favor of this this new style of hitting, or not new, but at least uh, sort of re-retro, brought back. So it's not really a knock on Charlie Lau. Charlie Lau did great things in the game of baseball, but uh, as, someone I ta- as someone I quoted in the book said to me, Charlie Lau died very young. It's a very reasonable question to wonder what would have happened if, if he had lived longer right. to sort of uh, have access to video and all of what we have access to now. It's very possible his, ad- his, his thinking would have changed as well. Right, yeah, and, and like you said, during his time with a lot of AstroTurf and, and bigger ballparks, it might have been the, the right way, way, way to teach it. But you mentioned he was like, yeah, you're right, the, the most well-known hitting coach is like, uh, like Doug Harvey was the most well-known umpire. You just really know a couple of them, and, and he, was, uh, he was big back in the, uh, the early 70s with, with George Brett. He was the man. He was the man. He was in movies, he wrote books. Yeah. He usually wanted to learn to hit from. He was a, he's a fascinating character, and it is a shame that he, he didn't live long enough to see what, where hitting would go. You talk about another controversial figure in the book who was Aaron Judge's swing coach. Can you talk about the, who, who we call the teacher man? The teacher man. The, the villain of swing kings, if there were a villain. <laughs> uh, it is the teacher man. He's, uh, yeah, he's a controversial figure, to say the least. His name is Richard Schenk. He was a, like so many of these guys, a so-so college baseball player who sort of gave up the game and realized uh, I want to teach my children how to be better hitters. So he became obsessed with the internet, the yeah. early days of the internet. Right. When he, it was sort of like uh, Twitter, but even more aggressive is how uh, it's been described to me. Uh, <laughs> That's early, pretty hard to do. <laughs> the, me- the message boards and the like. Yeah, it's pretty wild times. So he tried to make his son's better hitter, and he had varying degrees of success. Uh, and he eventually said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to just try to figure it out myself. And he became obsessed with Barry Bonds, uh, watching Barry Bonds, who was the best hitter in the world, of course, at the time. And he would spend all day and night in his home watching Barry Bonds hit until, he, until in his mind, he figured it out. One day, he thinks he figured it out. He figured it out, at least in his mind what Barry Bonds was doing. He figured out how to match the swing. He called himself Rich from the Basement. That's how he described it. And he sort of got a following. He was hated in some corners for being kind of a jerk on the internet, but he also had a following in some other corners. And it became this controversial figure who started amassing followers, kind of like a cult leader in a way. Until one day, one of the people who became one of the someone who followed him was a man by the name of Dave Matranga, who was a, a minor league player who was sort of like, didn't have much success. He actually has a claim to fame. He he hit a home run in his first major league at bat, Matranga. It was, it was the only 
major league hit he had. It was a home run. So that's pretty fascinating. He ended up falling in with Richard Shank, really believed that he knew what he was talking about. Time goes by, David Matranga becomes an agent, and one of his clients is none other than guess who? Aaron Judge. Mm -hmm. Aaron Judge comes up to the Yankees in 2016, doesn't have much success. I'm sure any Yankee fan remembers he really struggled in 2016. So David Matranga tells him, you know what? I have an idea. I know this guy. You know, he's kind of a weirdo, kind of controversial, but... Uh, do me a favor. Come out to Arizona. Give me five days. I want you to work with this guy. If you like it, keep trying it. If you don't, you give it up right away. I won't be offended. Just just give it a shot. Aaron Judge, being a nice, affable fella, says, okay, I'll come out. Goes out to Arizona for five days to work with Richard Shank. And really, the rest is history. The next year was 2017. Aaron Judge became an absolute phenomenon. Now, Richard Shank remains a very controversial figure. He's on Twitter now. He, you go look at his Twitter. He's kind of mean sometimes. He attacks people. A lot of people hate him. A lot of people really have strong feelings about him. But Aaron Judge believes this guy helped him. And uh, it's a really powerful thing. And, you know, Richard Shank's a controversial figure, but he's sort of the villain of the book. And I'm not, I don't, I don't mean that to judge him. Clearly, a lot of people feel very strongly about him. Yeah, but he, uh, he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Yeah, he was thrown off uh, message boards and, you know, for cursing and, and putting down others. They're, you know, I, I thought that was kind of strange, but, but like you said, it was controversial and, and it worked for Aaron Judge. And others. And, and others, Richard's yes. Had the yeah. Richard's had the opportunity to work with other hitters mm. over the years. Ian Happ, uh, uh, Scott Kingery. So, they're no slouches. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but, yeah, Richard's a controversial fellow. And uh, I was um, I was excited to get to tell his story because of how controversial he is. So, this kind of begs the question, why aren't more younger players, minor leaguers and all that, go outside, get outside hitting coaches? It's, is it because they don't want to upset the organizational brass that they're going outside the system? Well, that's always been the reason, sort of, oh. through the years. Okay. It was considered controversial. It was considered people just didn't want they didn't want to alienate their their coaches, and I understand that. But things have changed now, and what you've seen, as we talked about before, more and more, these guys that were once outside hitting coaches are now inside hitting coaches, and they're getting hired by major league teams. The stigma about going outside the organization is—I don't want to say it's completely gone, but it's certainly dissipated. And I think that's a good thing for the game of baseball. Mm -hmm. Also, talk about Bob Tewksbury, who was who helped Chris Colbello and Josh Donaldson, who actually uh, pitched to Josh Donaldson in the home run derby. Bobby Tewksbury is how I learned about all this in the first place. Oh, he was okay. the first. He was the first person I I really learned about. And it was like you said because of. Mr. Donaldson throwing him in the home run derby. I just couldn't believe that. How is this guy throwing to how is this guy throwing to Josh Donaldson in the home run derby? Who is this guy? It sort of piqued my interest at all in the story, trying to understand Bobby Tewksbury's story and how that happened. Bobby Tewksbury was actually a good baseball player. He actually was a really good college player at the University of Vermont. Ended up playing a little bit of independent pro ball. But he had a friend in the independent league. He kind of fizzled out. He wasn't a great pro player. But he had a friend, Chris Colabella, who we all may remember, who was a, a, 
a big leaguer at some point with the Blue Jays. Right, with the Blue Jays. And he had a chance to work with him. He worked with Calabella. They're they kind of close friends. One of his best friends in the world is Chris Calabella. And Calabella, you know, he was struggling, thought he could be better. And, and Tewksbury said, why don't you try out some of these things I've been learning? He's been doing a lot of research on the internet with video. Calabello says, all right, let's give it a shot. And suddenly, Chris Calabello is a star. Chris Calabello gets to the major leagues. Chris Calabello is a great year. And through that, Calabello introduces Tewksbury to Donaldson. And Donaldson, as a way to thank him, says, why don't you throw to me in the home run dirty? And I think for many people, the first time they ever heard about the idea of an independent hitting coach working with the major leaguer and having success was Chris was a Bobby Tewksbury mm-hmm. with Josh Donaldson. The book is fascinating. It's called Swing Kings, the Inside Story of Baseball's Home Run Revolution. It's available now. I guess Amazon, Bound Noble, your local bookstore, always try to uh, patronize them. Jared, this is a fascinating book. Uh, can I ask you a couple of questions about uh, baseball, well, today? Well, when eventually yes, it'll be course. today. <laughs> Of course, I do. Also, but before we do, I just want to say these are really tough times for bookstores. So a lot of them are closed. So any any way, to, even if it's not with my book, supporting these stores, independent bookstores now, I think is more important than ever. So if you're in the position to in these tough times, I know it would go a long way. Here, here, absolutely, yes, definitely. The uh, independent bookstores are they're a great resource. I I know I go to one in Huntington, Long Island, a lot. The book review. They're fantastic. You know, please try to patronize your local independent bookstores. As for today, obviously we're in this uh, holding pattern. Uh, baseball is suspended. I saw an article today that it could that the players and the and the uh, owners are seeking like a, a June start date. What have What have you heard? The answer is nobody knows for sure. Right? I should yeah. point that out. Okay. Uh, no, anything you read about when the season is going to start. Trust me, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, nobody knows definitively when the season's going to start. We can only sort of try to hope and guess, but nobody knows for sure. These are unprecedented times. What we do know is, as of today, which the, this you know a lot might change between now and this actually being available. But as of today, the the league and the union are negotiating various issues related to not just when the season will start, but things such as uh, how salaries will work and the like uh, they're getting close to an agreement so I wouldn't be surprised if by the time this comes out there is an agreement uh, to that end which would be good for everybody but rea- and the reality is we just don't know when things are going to get going it's it's tough you know it's it's absolutely brutal but we just don't know at this point and I just we only get hope there is going to be a baseball season at all because I'm not prepared for a year with no baseball uh, I don't think any of us are do you think there's a chance the baseball will be played but in front of empty seats, empty stadiums? I think, not only do I think there's a chance of that, I think it's, at this point, the most likely outcome. If there is going to be a season, uh-huh. I think that's going to have to happen in front of empty fans, empty stadiums, at least for part of the time. Uh, I think that's going to become a real priority, governmentally, etc., to try to get baseball back on TV. Because right. uh, it, it's so important to people. They really like, feel like they need it. It'll really boost morale if we're able to get baseball on television. And it might be take a while. It might be tough. But to do it really would be meaningful to people. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how things get started, is with 
no fans. And hopefully they're able to play in front of fans at some point this year. But as we all know, we're in, we're in uncharted waters right now. No one has any idea uh, how this is going to go. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. When venture a guess on how many games will be played? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm thinking 81. I'm thinking half a 80 season. To a, I think 80 to 100 is the best case scenario at this point. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, baseball returns soon, as we all do. But, you know, obviously, we got to get through this uh, pandemic uh, first. And everybody comes through uh, as much as it can be healthy and, and practice your social distancing and sanitize everything. Uh, let me ask you this. How are you passing your time? Are you uh, still playing Stratomatic? <laughs> I love Stratomatic. I, heard. I don't I, I don't I don't have it in my house right now. Well I've been I should say I've been very busy at work. You would think that there are no sports I wouldn't be, but that would be wrong. I've been ridiculously busy because there's a lot of sports news right now, but honestly I temporarily temporarily replaced Stratomatic with MLB the show because we're doing a event on a Twitch, the platform Twitch, where I'm gonna be playing people at MLB the show and uh, talking about the book, so I'm trying to not to embarrass myself uh, <laughs> and learn how to play a video game, which I know very little about. So I'm I'm doing the best I can. Right, right. Maybe uh, an idea for your next book is why there's so much to- Tommy John surgeries. There's, uh, you know, since Tommy John had it back in the 70s, it's, it's exploded. I mean, now, we you know, the other day we heard, uh, you know, Noah Syndergaard's down, Chris Sale's down. Um, I know, it's remarkable, right? I mean, back before... Before Tommy John actually had the surgery, there was like none. None of these ever happened. Well, obviously they, they well, did. Nobody knew. You a, <laughs> may I recommend you a great book by Jeff Passan called The Arm? Came out a few years back. It actually talks a lot about Tommy John surgery and why this is happening. So I'd recommend checking it out. Okay. Well, Jared, uh, uh, I really want to thank you for spending a half hour with us. The uh, book is called Swing Kings: The Inside Story of Baseball's Home Run Revolution. Jared Diamond, it's a fantastic book of, of the way today's baseball is, is being played and the home runs proliferation. I, I mean, I thought it was, uh, you know, the ball and, and, and whatnot, but, uh, you know, this really explains it in great, uh, great detail and great uh, narrative. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really hope, you know, I, like I said before, I know these are really crazy times and people are, are struggling, but I hope that for people that are in the position to take a look at the book, I'd really appreciate it because you know, I spent a lot of time working on this and it's, you know, this is so unimportant in the grand scheme of things, but it really is. It's been disappointing to know that the, the, re- the releases now during these crazy times and that's going to affect people's ability to check it out. So if you're in the ability, have the ability to still uh, buy books and check it out, it would really mean a lot to me if you give it a look. Absolutely, and I hope uh, once everything is, is back to uh, normal, you get to go on a, a tour and we, uh, you know, promote the book some more. Jared? I hope so. All my events were canceled for yeah. now, so got to hope for the best. Absolutely. Jared, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Jared Diamond. book is fantastic. Highly recommended. Go get it. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, like we said, go to your local bookstore. I know that a lot of them are not open, but if you call them, they might be able to bring it to you, to your car. Get the book. You can follow Jared on Twitter. His Twitter is at Jared Diamond. J-A-R-E-D-D-I-A-M-O-N-D. Follow him. Great guy. Please get the book. 
All right, Len wanted me to give you a little barbecue news, so I'm going to do that. The Pit Bell Cooker Company, owned by Noah Glanville and his family, has acquired the Barrel House Cooker Company, maker of module vertical barrel cookers of the same name. I'm going to quote Noah Glanville now. One of the elements that brought Amber and I into the outdoor living industry was the way the fire, the fire and food can bring us all together. So we're excited to be expanding our barbecue family, said Noah Glanville, co-founder, president and CEO of Pit Bell Cooker Company. As pioneers in the vertical cooker market, we've always strived to bring the best to the consumer and they have always been a big part of that winning formula. We're so excited to bring our industry knowledge together with the passion of the Barrel House fans to chart a new path forward for the company and the brand. So that's the barbecue news for the week. The Pit Barrel Cooker Company has acquired the Barrel House Cooker Company, LLC. Google Pit Barrel Cooker. They have a website. Check it out. Very good. I have one myself. And that's going to be it for this very short podcast. We hope everybody really be safe. Take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones. Practice the social distancing and washing your hands and all that. And we will be back next time with another edition of Baseball and BBQ. On behalf of Len Aberman, I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for joining us. It's been as clutch as the Dodgers have. And Turner in the air to center field. That ball's hit well. Martinez on the run. This is way back. And it is gone. It is a walk-off home run for Justin Turner. Getting behind, came in with the fastball right there, and Turner didn't miss it. That high leg kick, that long extension and follow through. He grew up a Dodger fan, now he's part of Dodger history. Long beats to Cal State Fullerton, and one of the biggest moments of his life, Justin Turner. A three-run walk-off home run. The Dodgers win game two in thrilling fashion.